And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Back in 1927, I had a little farm and I called that heaven. Well, the price is up and the rain come down and I hauled my crops all into town. I got the money, bought clothes and groceries, fed the kids and raised the family. Rain quit and the wind got high and a black old dust storm filled the sky and I swapped my farm for a Ford machine and I poured it full of this gas eileen and I started rocking and rolling over the mountains out towards the old peach bowl. By the middle of recording sessions for their new LP, the Beatles, or more accurately Paul McCartney, had hit upon the idea of using the concept of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band to be a kind of conceptual glue, which would bind all of the songs on the album together. An alternative persona for the Beatles, which would allow them some creative freedom to move away from everything they were known for so far, and stretch their musical wings to see where they could fly. Contrary to popular belief, the Beatles did not invent the concept album, a collection of songs which are all connected thematically or form a narrative. That particular honour is generally credited to American folk singer Woody Guthrie, whose album Dust Bowl Ballads contained tales about drought and depression in the 1930s and the plight of the people who lived on the land. Released in 1940, Woody Guthrie had a considerable head start on John, Paul, George and Ringo. Nonetheless, Paul continued to espouse the virtues of collecting the songs in such a way, but by all accounts, the others weren't overly enthused about the idea. I think we recorded the song first, and then the idea came to make it into a, an idea for the, for the album, which was also triggered by Neil, Neil Aspinall, who said at that time, Why don't we have Sergeant Pepper as the compa? You know, he comes on at the beginning of the show, introduces the band, right? And then at the end of every Beatles show, Paul always used to say, it's, uh, you know, it's time to go, you know, we've got to go to bed, and, uh, you know, this is our last number. You know, do the last number and go. And uh, I said to, to Paul, why doesn't Sergeant Pepper come on at the end of the album and say, you know, well, that's it, we've got to go, you know, here's our last number, right? And... Uh, send the album on tour instead of the band, right? So uh, we like that idea. And one of the things I know, we'd read a report somewhere that had said Elvis Presley has sent his gold-plated Cadillac out on tour. And we just thought that was like the greatest idea going because we'd been touring and sending ourselves out. We thought, that's a really good idea. You stay at home and send your car. And true enough, uh, it did go on tour and people had come and they'd pay money and just wander around it like it was an exhibit at Madame Tussauds or something, you know, and he didn't have to be there. So at the time in the 60s when we were thinking of doing Sgt. Pepper, which is when we didn't want a tour, 
that idea suddenly sounded very nifty, you know. So we said, well, we, can't, we haven't got to go play the Cadillacs. We, we don't do that stuff. But we could send a record out on tour. I mean, it was Sgt. Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club Band and all these other acts. And it was going to all run, you know, like the rock opera. And uh, we got as far as uh, Sgt. Pepper and then Billy Shears. A <laughs> uh, little help from my friends. And then everyone said, ah, sod it. Let's just do tracks. So it started out with its own, you know, that it was going to be something totally different. But it still then kept the title. And, and like, uh, also the feel that it's, it's all connected. I think the concept of Pepper must have started about maybe halfway through the album. And then it's, and you know, and I, being working on it, I wasn't aware of this, you know, people keep, you know, you, you see articles about it that John thought of it as Paul's album, you know, and didn't like it. It's called the first concept album. It doesn't go anywhere. Mr. Kite, all my contributions have absolutely nothing to do with this idea of Sergeant Pepper and his band. But it works, because we said it worked, and that's how it appeared. With the title track all but finished by early March 1967, it was left to George Martin to score a brass section. By the 3rd of March, a month after the initial sessions had taken place, Take 10 had been the best recording thus far and was augmented with four French horns and an inspirational lead guitar break played by Paul. With the idea of the concept album gaining momentum, 
On the 6th of March, it was decided to add a little atmosphere to the album's opening track via some sound effects. And the idea was that you were sitting in the audience. You're sitting in a theatre as a part of an audience and all the songs come on and they're all on stage. Now this is atmosphere into Sergeant Pepper. On the intro on the Sergeant Pepper track, you know, with Sergeant Pepper's, no, 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 it goes into Billy Shears, and there's, I, I know you can hear it on the, whichever the stereo or the mono, you hear the audience laugh. And then, because we were flying these sound effects in, you know, the audience and bits, and, the, and the, there's a little laughter in there. And Paul made, must have made it right. Well, that's when you know Ringo comes on stage to sing Billy Shears and he trips up and falls over. That's why the audience laugh. So every song is like a different act that comes on stage. That was the perception. Uh, this is the applause into a little help from my friends. Uh, so I'm 20. The original sound effects tapes for the intro and outro of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The song was now complete, except for some mixing which would eventually see track one crossfaded into track two on the completed album. A song which had been written and specifically structured to follow the opening number, but was yet to be recorded. The 7th of March saw overdubs applied to another song started the previous month, with vocals and Combs and tissue paper?
Take 11 of Lovely Rita. Space was left for a solo of some description, which would be added in around two weeks' time. Attention now turned to a new song, a jaunty little number which, strangely enough, had its origins in the Beatles' Australian tour of 1964. The Beatles' official biographer, Hunter Davies, was in the process of writing his book about the Fab Four and was spending a lot of time with the Beatles, including at their writing and recording sessions. Davies was with Paul the day that he had the idea and turned it into a song. Another afternoon, it was the first afternoon of spring, and Paul went for a walk with his dog Martha. John still hadn't arrived for their latest recording work on Sergeant Pepper. He pushed Martha into his Aston Martin and got him beside her and started the car. He drove to Primrose Hill where he parked the car and left it without locking it. He never locks his cars. Martha ran around and the sun came out. Paul thought it really was spring at last. It's getting better, he said to himself. He meant the weather, but the phrase made him smile because it was one of Jimmy Nichols's phrases, one of which they used to mock all the time in Australia. When Ringo was ill and able to play, Jimmy Nichols deputised for him on part of the Australian tour. Every time one of them asked Jimmy how it was getting on, all he ever replied was, it's getting better. That day at two o'clock when John came round to write a new song, Paul suggested... Let's do a song called It's Getting Better. So they got going, both of them singing, improvising and messing around. When the tune was at last taking shape, Paul said, You've got to admit, it is getting better. Did you say, you've got to admit it's getting better? Then John sang those words as well. And so it went on till two in the morning. People came to see Paul, some by apartment. They were left waiting downstairs, reading, or were sent away. They stopped once for a meal, a quick fry-up. The next evening... Paul and John went to the recording studio. Paul played the new song on the piano, La La in the accompaniment, or banging in tune to his own words, to give the others an idea of what it sounded like. Ringo and George said they liked it, and so did George Martin. And that's how it was. Yeah. It is getting better, take one. Sing it, you know, uh, I gotta admit and get and all that, properly, if you can think, you know. Yeah. I'll just say one, two, because it can always be cut out.
knockback, he's just always going in on Take one of Getting Better, recorded at Abbey Road Studio on the 9th of March 1967. Seven takes of the basic track were captured, featuring Paul on the studio pianet, John and George on electric guitar, and of course Ringo on drums. With all four tracks full, several reduction mixes were made, the best being take 12. Onto this take the next day were overdubs of Paul's bass, extra snare and hi-hat from Ringo for added texture and punch, as well as some tambura from George, the same instrument used in Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, although this time droning all the way through the track. Take 12 of Getting Better. The song would need to wait another 11 days before work on it resumed. This album saw a noticeable shift in the way that the Beatles approached recording. Rather than working continuously on each song until it was complete, or even finishing a handful of songs in one or two close sessions, the approach taken was much more disjointed. A giant leap from the days of instant records in 1962 and 63 
and an attitude which gathered momentum as the Beatles became bigger stars, therefore wielding much greater clout at EMI. As engineer Jeff Emmerich and Paul explain. They could do whatever they wanted. There was no budget, there was no time period, there was no deadline for it to be finished. So it really was a carte blanche. You know, we could have a 40-piece orchestra, we could do anything we wanted. And until till everybody was happy, it wasn't finished. And it had never been like that. And no other artist ever had that. You know, they all either had to be, you know, on tour the next day or back up in Manchester doing a TV interview or something. So consequently... It, it, it turned out being, you know, I think 400 hours it was all together. How many takes do you, did you usually do on this album before you got the perfect take? We did quite a few on each one. But uh, it's just because it's changed, you know, like in the, in the old days uh, of like, the LP Please Please Me, we went in and did it in a day because we knew all the numbers and, uh, you know, they'd been... We'd rehearsed them and done them and been playing them for about a year, but nowadays we just take a song in and all we've got, you know, is the chords on a guitar and the words and the tune. So we've got to work out how to arrange it and that. So we do a lot of takes on each one. You know. We were, we were changing our method of working at that time. And instead of now looking for catchy singles, catchy singles, catchy singles, it was now to, to do more, it was more like writing your novel, the Sergeant Pepper thing, for me, definitely. It was much more a kind of overall concept, wow, you know, In a marked departure from their early days at Abbey Road, again a reflection of their much higher status in the organisation and their command of studio time, Beatles sessions would now routinely begin in the evening and carry through to the early hours of the morning. Of course, Ringo's role on most tracks was over and done with in the first few takes, leaving him to wait patiently while the others decided where to take the recordings next. Engineer Richard Lush and Ringo himself recall. Sometimes he gets overlooked because, you know, we had like his little drum booth and, you know, we keep changing the rhythm, rhythm of the songs. We, it might, they might try it four hours one way and not be happy with the rhythm or so forth and then they try it another way. And he, he, but he'd be drumming from this time that we started, you know, to routine the song, you know, for a long time, eight hours maybe. And the, and the session was always over normally when you see Ringo stand up at four in the morning and put his coat on. And that... You know, that, he didn't say anything. You know, the others were talking or we just finished another take or something and he'd be so tired he'd just stand up and put his coat on. And you know that was the end of the session. You know. It took longer for me because I would do the basic track. We would do the basic backing track, which would do the, uh, the drums. And then it would be days or weeks and even months uh, sometimes to come back to the track and put on, you know overdub like the Hyatt or it was, uh, you know listening again there's lots of um, conga drums and I'm not a percussionist you know that's another field of drums but I'm on playing the congas and there's lots of maracas and all that stuff sort of came on at the end so there was a lot of huge gaps I, you know the biggest memory I have of Sergeant Pepper is I learned to play chess on it <laughs> On the 13th of March, nearly three weeks after it had last been touched, Good Morning Good Morning was pulled from the tape shelf to allow for the overdub of a brass section onto take 10. 
There was a cast of six musicians, including three players from Sounds Incorporated, a British band from Kent who had backed many American artists on tours to England and Europe, including Beatle heroes Little Richard and Gene Vincent. They had befriended the Beatles in Hamburg in 1962, were signed to NEMS Enterprises by Brian Epstein in 1964, and had opened for the Beatles on their 1965 American tour, including at Shea Stadium. This was the result. reconstruction of the brass overdub onto take 10 of Good Morning, Good Morning. While the song sounded pretty much complete at this point, there was still more work to do on it. But in true 1967 Beatles style, this would have to wait for another two weeks. As if enough ground hadn't already been broken in the session so far, the next track to be recorded was ready to throw the album in yet another direction. Does this mean that all of the boys are going to be trying different things as you go along, John? Well, I can't speak for the others, you know, but George has just got back from India, trying India. I saw a picture of him with a mustache the other day, picking up that teacher of the sitar at London Airport. Oh, yeah, he was, he came, he travelled with him, I think, from really? India, that's his teacher. He flipped over that instrument, didn't he? Well, yeah, well, that fellow that teaches him is one of the all-time greats, you know, yeah, so he was lucky that, 
that the fellow would accept him as a pupil. He doesn't just have anybody. Would you be using the sitar as a regular sound, as a regular part of the future? No, I mean, that's, the sitar just happens to have come in useful on a couple of tracks, but it's really nothing to do with it. You know, that's George's own scene. It won't be a part of the regular uh, albums or records? No, unless it's called for. Yeah. When, is mean, it called for? when is it called for? I don't know when you suddenly think, a sitar will be nice here. No, George will obviously write more numbers where the sitar's involved if he feels like it. When George Harrison came to me, I didn't know what to think. But I found he really wanted to learn. I never thought our meeting would cause such an explosion. I'd heard the name of Ravi Shankar it must have been around 1965 maybe 1966, uh, the third time I heard this name, I went out and bought the record. It was um, strange because intellectually, I didn't know what it was. It didn't make any sense to me, but somewhere inside of me, it made absolute sense. It made more sense than anything I'd ever heard before. We all knew George liked Indian music and it was, it, there was a kind of toleration, if you like, um, but it was, it was a welcome one because we, we actually liked the sounds. Um, so the, the joysticks even were okay. They, held, they covered the smell of pot. Within You Without You was just my way of trying to make a Western pop song using some of those instruments and some of those sounds. George wasn't very involved in that album. He just had one song, really. It's really the only time during the whole album, main time, I remember him turning up.
because this ma is in in the right into the beat if it goes On the 15th of March 1967, work began on George's second contribution to the album, but the only one which would actually make it to the final mix. Again, labelled as Untitled, the song was recorded by George and a number of Indian musicians from the Asian Music Circle, based in Finchley, North London. George and Beatles assistant Neil Aspinall played tambura on the track. There was only one take, and Richard Lush remembers only minimal involvement from one other Beatle on the track. We had a lot of fun recording that, especially mixing it. We sort of put a lot of flanging on his sitar, and uh, if you listen very carefully, at the end of one of the sessions, there's a little bit of tambourine. Now, somebody walked in to the studio while we were doing whatever it was, picked up a tambourine and just played along. That's the only piece of somebody else other than George or his Indian friends. It was either John or Paul or Ringo. So they they, they walked in downstairs and we, we, we couldn't see, you know, who did it. But I thought, oh, there's a tambourine playing along. Who's doing that? Take one.
okay, uh, just go. Take one of George's Within You, Without You. Among the visitors to this session was artist Peter Blake, who had been commissioned to design the front cover of the new album, one which would astound and fascinate for decades to come. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll sit in again with the Beatles as they complete the album, which was to become one of the most, if not the most, influential in the history of popular music. Until next time, 